Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Dr. Simon Skillebeck, who is the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Handprint, a regeneration as a service platform that helps companies grow with the planet by integrating and automatic regeneration into their daily business processes. Simon also co-founded the Global Mangrove Trust, a non-profit working on large-scale mangrove restoration and conservation. Simon is also Assistant Professor of Strategic Management at the Lee Kong Chan School of Business of the Singapore Management University. And prior to his move to Singapore in 2015, he obtained a PhD in Management from Imperial College London and worked on Sustainable Innovation Consulting. And before that, he read Corporate Social Responsibility at Nottingham University and Commercial Engineering at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. Simon, where does this passion come from? My passion for sustainability and for saving the world. Gosh, I think this is something that I've had for a long time. Famously in, in Handprint, one of my company, they know that I was 10 years old when my mom asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, I want to be the first person to win the Nobel Prize for Peace and the Nobel Prize for Economics in the same year. So that gives you a sense of my ambition. and. I think I was always interested in just like a different way of thinking. And so initially, I mean, I just went to to school in Belgium, where I'm from. Then I studied applied economics and uh, commercial engineering, which is basically a mixture of exact science and applied economics. And I was very frustrated by the way humanity is depicted in kind of mainstream economics as a self-interest seeking with guile species that is willing to you know, stick it to the man in order to achieve whatever they want. And and so I had this niggling feeling that this was not necessarily the, the only way of thinking about people. And then I decided to pursue a second degree in, in corporate social responsibility and business ethics, where I got exposed to a lot more uh, alternative ways of thinking that uh, aligned a lot more with my my own intuitions. And I think during that moment, I had a like an epiphany when I saw the TED talk from William McDonough, who's an, uh, an American architect, who is also the author of the book Cradle to Cradle. So really the beginning of the circular economy. And that TED talk really stuck with me. I think after seeing that, I decided that, okay, we need to really fix the environment. And so that's been a passion ever since. And that was 2006. So I've been in this space for quite a while. Yeah, that's that's great because my guests always start with this kind of life story and it usually comes from a very, very young age. And uh, I totally relate to what you say about uh, the way uh, economics are taught because I also studied economics and I was like, how can you really say that the world is infinite? Because we can see already in the, the course of our lifetime that there are some limits to expansion, to growth, and even the term growth is kind of 
weird because we are only what we are and we are finite also as human beings. I mean, there will be one day when we die and we just have to deal with that as well. So I totally relate to, to what you have to say about this and the fact that we have to deal with our environment and make sure that it's here. We are working together instead of against each other. So when did you decide to found a handprint, which is, from what I understood, an environment and social regeneration platform where companies can go to adopt more sustainable behavior. And can you also explain to our listeners what handprint is, please? Sure. This is quite a long story, so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, but I think it, it merits some context. So I was studying in the, in the UK to do my degree in business ethics, and then after that, I worked for a while in sustainability consulting, got sick of that, and then did my PhD in innovation and also looked a lot during that time at uh, natural resource management. So environmental sustainability, specifically around how we deal with natural resources. Eventually, I ended up in Singapore in 2015, being perfectly happy being an academic. And I was a pure academic for about three and a half years. But then something happened. I had started to do research on innovation in the natural world, looking at nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations that were experimenting with really new ideas in order to protect, restore uh, like elements of the natural world. And one of the, the main organizations uh, we spent some time with was a Norwegian reforestation uh, nonprofit in Myanmar that was working on mangrove restoration. At the time, my postdoc, Ryan Merrill, who's now my co-founder, and I uh, went to Myanmar, spent some time in the, in the forests with the NGO um, during a really interesting time for them because there, were, there was a documentary team from Al Jazeera. There was people from UNDP. There was a team out of Oxford that was using drones to plant trees. So there was this amazing confluence of people that was there and that enabled us to get super excited about this space. And, and we came back from that trip, both with the idea we really want to do something more. But I was a happy academic and I was not that inclined to turn that feeling into action very quickly. But Ryan, my colleague, was um, a little bit more disenchanted academic already. And he basically told me at some point, I've set up a nonprofit organization and you're a director. And I was like, okay, so apparently that's what we're going to do now. And then with that nonprofit called Global Mangrove Trust, which still exists, we worked for a few years in basically improving transparency of climate financing, as well as developing the initial tools to enable high-quality, high-fidelity, space-based verification of reforestation projects so that we can use satellites and machine learning in order to create an estimate of how much carbon is being sequestered in a forest. So that was all very interesting work, and we got supported by one of the big banks here, by a blockchain organization, by some governmental organizations. But after a while, we started working with a friend of mine who was an entrepreneur and who was going to help us get access to a very big grant. 
that grant never happened, but that collaboration of the, the three of us, so Ryan, myself, and, and Matthias, who's now our CEO, did really work. And we, we really liked working together. And Matthias was hyper enthusiastic about the work we had been doing in the past. And he said, let's just set up a company. That's what happened. And in the end of uh, 2019, we founded Handprint as the three of us with a view to create a solution that would make it very easy for companies to plant trees. That was really the initial, uh, the initial plan. Because of end of 2019, you will remember, of course, um, this was the beginning of COVID. So we were very decentralized from the beginning, although Matthias at the time was still living in Singapore like, like I was. Ryan was already living back in Bangkok. So we worked online um, from home uh, because we were in lockdowns uh, in our respective countries anyway. anyway. And so we, Matthias started building our very first platform, which was called Tree with three E's, where we would try to say, okay, can we make an interesting platform that enables companies to just buy trees and potentially do something useful with them? And then out of that initial platform grew. Right now, a team of 40 people with um, a couple of rounds of seed investment and a much broader objective. The broader objective being that what started out as a pure tree platform has now become a platform to enable positive impact across all types of sustainable development goals. Right, So not purely reforestation, but we also work with coral reef, we work with ocean plastic removal, we work with uh, social impact, female empowerment, access to education, access to portable water and food, like anything really that aligns with sustainable development goals. And we are building tools that enable companies to integrate kind of small handprints, positive impacts into their uh, business processes. So it could be into their sales, could be into their transactions, could be into newsletter signups, newsletter, uh, Facebook likes, like anything that has a digital fingerprint, we can link to the creation of a handprint. And handprint here is kind of juxtaposed to footprint. And so footprint is all the bad a company does or an individual does by virtue of producing stuff or by virtue of living. And handprint is all the good we do by virtue of making deliberate choices and uh, taking action. And so that's the origin of handprint. That's absolutely fascinating. And I love the fact that you went on the ground and, and saw that what kind of actions were needed. And I love the fact that you have a view from another part of the world. I mean, uh, in Singapore, maybe you witness way more clearly than we do in Europe, the, the effects of climate change. And it's much smaller. And the solutions that you may see, or I mean, going to, to Bangkok or going to Myanmar is much easier when you're in Singapore than when you are from in Europe. So you may see that very much more clearly than we do. And I also really, really like the fact that you are delivering some very practical tools because isn't it like the main obstacle businesses may have that they, they don't know where to start? So how does that work? What if uh, like today I would like to just start being more sustainable, my company being more sustainable? What would you recommend and what kind of steps would we make together? Right. So, I mean, there's two things. On the one side, we make a very clear distinction in the way we talk and engage with companies, a distinction between sustainability and regeneration. 
Sustainability is the approach that companies have used for the last 40, 50 years. And sustainability, by and large, comes down to reduction. How can we reduce our negative impact? How can we reduce our footprint, reduce our water, our energy, our waste, all of those things? Super important. Not what Handprint is doing. There are loads of consultancies, loads of tech companies that work with companies on these kind of dimensions, but this is really not what we are doing. So regeneration is about creating positive impact. The reason why we make this distinction very clearly is because right now there is a fundamental problem in the way companies think about their environmental responsibility, which is that the problem is that the thinking has been so dominated by what is going on in in terms of climate change, which is, of course, the biggest existential threat there is, that everybody is obsessed with their carbon footprint. Now, you run a small podcast. Your ability to reduce your footprint as a podcast host that is doing their interviews online, and you didn't fly to Singapore to have this interview with me, is non-existent. Like, literally, you have no capacity to make your footprint smaller. So it's as a consequence, it really shouldn't be a focus for you. And what is true for you is, by and large, true for all kinds of organizations that work in the service industry and that work in digital. If we look at this in Europe, we look at this in the US, we look at this in Singapore, that's between 70 and 80% of people that are employed. And the dominant approach to sustainability doesn't apply to those organizations. And this is really a big problem. So the dominant approach is all about we have to reduce our footprint. But if you're, let's say you run a small accountancy firm, uh, you've got a couple of people, all of your clients are local. Like what on earth are you going to do with your footprint? You have an office, you have lights, you're printing some paper. Yeah. I mean, you can reduce all of this and you can encourage people to cycle to work. But this This cannot be the extent of your environmental responsibility. So Handprint really focuses on the regeneration aspect. And as a consequence, we mainly work with companies that are in digital and are in the service space and that agree with this perspective that, yes, for us to reduce our footprint, it's very easy. But it's not really interesting. It's not really valuable. It doesn't really create a lot of impact. So then we can say, okay, now let's start doing something that has positive meaning that has positive impact, that's what we then do with these organizations. As I mentioned before, the way it works, it's really tailored to whatever the company wants to do. The simplest way of thinking about this is if you as a company have KPIs, key performance indicators, stuff that really drive your success as an organization, and those KPIs have nothing to do with sustainability, which is true for most companies. If you connect those KPIs to doing something good, like you make a commitment that says, every time I hit this KPI, I'm going to do something good. Then as your business does better, you're going to do more good in the world. And this is really how Handprint operates. That's fascinating because it's really about integrating uh, those sustainable KPIs into uh, the, the business model without having to really think so much about it. You make it very natural somehow. It's, it's weird to use the term natural in this circumstances, but you make it like a very organic, again, something that, uh, that companies can build on. And I really like how practical it can be, how impactful it can be, and how simple it can be as well. 
in one of the latest podcasts we had, we discussed with somebody who was really all about planning when you use your energy to make sure that you use energy from renewable sources. And he developed an app to help you really see when the time was right. And I really think that there is something about simplicity in the way we consumers, either as uh, small business owners or people being part of a company in general, and uh, really as, as citizens, we can make a difference by bringing some change that are small and incremental. And it's really about this kind of solutions that totally make a difference. But I wanted to get back to a point that you made the other day on, on LinkedIn, and that's also why I contacted you. You said that something was kind of not right with the term climate tech, because you say nothing is wrong with the climate tech except one thing. When people talk about climate tech, they really mean carbon tech. It's all carbon tunnel vision, carbon footprint, carbon equivalent, carbon credit, carbon compensation, carbon emission reduction, etc. But if we see climate change as the one problem that we change makers need to solve, we are not going to succeed. Climate change is only a symptom. So what is the bigger problem and what can we do about it? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So this post on LinkedIn completely went viral. And it's a weird experience for especially like a still a reforming academic to suddenly have this element of virality. I think by now I have 750,000 people have seen that post, more than 1,500 comments, more than 400 reshares. It's really sparked a nerve. And I think we really touched on something that many people were thinking, uh, but didn't necessarily give voice to. And so the goal of the post was really to highlight that the wider issues that exist in the world are not going to be solved by a singular obsession towards the reduction of a single metric, aka carbon. Now, carbon is extremely important, right? I don't want any of the listeners to, to use this as an excuse to say, okay, so we don't need to care about this. Like There were people that commented on that post that basically were climate change deniers. And then I was like, okay, this is weird. This is definitely not my, my audience in general, but it's interesting to have a brief discussion with them. But the singular obsession with a single metric risks creating very unintended consequences that are unlikely to be desirable, right? So the most radical perspective here is if climate change and, and excessive carbon emissions is the main thing we need to do, then as the English or the Scottish comedian Frankie Boyle once said, then the best thing we can do with plastic bags is to suffocate our children, right? Because we are all responsible for a negative impact by virtue of being alive. Right? So this is obviously not the narrative that anybody wants. The problem here is that there are many other important challenges that should not be forgotten about, even when you're specifically trying to address climate change. So let me give you a very concrete example. So a lot of what we do in Handprint is in support for uh, natural regeneration, reforestation projects. There may be the possibility to grow a type of tree that grows very quickly, that will absorb a lot of carbon, but that is not native to an area, and grow that tree in a monoculture so that it's only in this kind of tree, which is terrible for biodiversity. 
right? If you just think we need to absorb as much carbon as possible, as quickly as possible, then this would be a very good strategy. But the long-term consequences of this in terms of soil erosion, in terms of not supporting biodiversity, are potentially very detrimental. So we need to have a broader understanding of the different types of challenges that are present in the world today, not only in the environmental front. I mean, we're dealing with climate change, we're dealing with biodiversity collapse, which is, depending on who you ask, which may be a bigger and a more irreversible problem than than climate change. But we're also dealing still with a lot of human challenges, right? So we still have many issues in terms of human rights, in terms of lack of access to education, lack of access to potable water, lack of gender equality. Um, so there are many other things that we need to consider. And I think the SDGs as a framework, the Sustainable Development Goals, are a very good framework that kind of encapsulate most of the big challenges that we need to think about. But right now, the obsession in the in the business space is really everything focuses on carbon. And what we wanted to bring into the open is like, look, there is something else to think about. There are multiple challenges and we shouldn't develop carbon tunnel vision where we only see carbon and ignore everything else. I totally uh, relate to what you are saying, this kind of tunnel vision, because I work mostly on um, citizens' rights and access to energy and really the social aspects of the energy and climate transition. And recently I attended a business fair that was about uh, community energy. And the speakers were all excellent, but they were never talking about the human side of community energy. They were only talking about the technology aspect. And for me, it was very interesting, of course. I mean, I'm all about learning of, about techs, you know, and, and trying to understand how wires are made, etc. But the human side of thing was very neglected. And it felt that one of the key pieces of the jigsaw puzzle was, was missing. So I had to say it. I had to to ask those kind of uncomfortable questions to the, the members of this panel. And indeed, they ended up being a little bit puzzled because they were like, okay, yes, indeed, we have to consider that too, but we don't know where to start. So it's really important that we come all together with our field of experience. We come together to the, the same table and we take some time to talk and also to listen to what each other have to say. And for me, what matters the most is also to go through really to the field and spend time with local population who are actually affected by climate change, who are actually affected by lack of access to potable water, to women who are not accessing education, etc., to also listen to what they have to say and what the kind of aspirations they would like to have. And I feel that the handprint platform is also about giving a hand to help somebody or help something to and make things happen. And I really like, you know, I'm really visualizing this kind of, uh, we are shaking hands and we are shaking hands for the greater good. What do you think? Yeah, I align with that. I think that your remark about the human side is very important and it's indeed very often overlooked. And if you look at Again, I'm going to come back to this example. Like if you look at how we think about our footprint, most people these days, especially people that, are, that have had the good fortune of going to university, will know what this term is. Right? They will have heard about a footprint and they will potentially have some idea 
about what their carbon footprint is uh, on an annual basis. Right? And that basically means they have an idea about how much damage they're doing to the world, uh, to, the, to the natural ecosystems. And that knowledge may be useful. But the problem is that knowledge very rarely leads to very sustained action. Right? So if you look at evidence from social psychology, it's very clear that if you want to shock people into action, you need to make them feel guilty. Right? So if we see on TV, we see a disaster, we see like a horrible, like the tsunami or a cyclone, we see these images of all the homeless people and people dying, and then we will donate money. And that is a human trigger that is easily activated and guilt can lead to action. But if you want people to engage in sustained action over a long period of time, making them feel guilty doesn't work. Because if that is the mechanism through which you're trying to drive change, people will just opt out because nobody wants to feel guilty all the time. Right? And if you kind of translate that to, to the human side, saying the way we need to approach climate change and nature and biodiversity loss and, and the other challenges is through a message that no matter how horrible the situation may be, you need to be able to paint an aspirational message an aspirational picture of what a better future could look like rather than constantly hammering on the negative. Because if you're doing that, then you're not going to get people to be motivated and to be sustained in action. So this is really, I think, our approach. And as you earlier pointed out, it's very probable that this is heavily inspired by our being in Asia as our three founders although we're not Asian ourselves, but we've been here for a very long time. Me, eight years, Matthias, almost nine, uh, Ryan, I think 15 or 20. So we've been here for a very long time. And so we've had access to these great projects that we yeah, went to see and that we uh, interact with. And it is, if you look at uh, Handprint versus many of its competitors, this is one of the key differentiating factors is that we have that personal connection with all of the projects that we work with it doesn't mean we've visited all of them on the ground because that's very costly and also very carbon intensive uh, if we have to fly all over the world to visit uh, people. But we have that personal connection. And that, I think, is one of the, the reasons why we can offer a lot more value to companies that support these projects um, because we can literally get them in touch with the right organization, with the people on the ground, so that they can establish that emotional connection as well. And going back to your experience as a European person living in Asia, what kind of difference are you noticing? I mean, now you, we can say that you're starting to be a little bit bicultural. So what kind of differences do you notice and what kind of inspiration can you, can you also build from both, let's say, cultural environment, society, etc.? Because Singapore is also very, very particular. It's, it's very tiny. It aims to be very sustainable. It's very multicultural. So, so it's completely different world to the world where you, you grew up in, to Belgium. Yeah, I mean, it's very different now. I've been here a long time and I've lived in South America before and in the UK. And so I've, I've been around a little bit. Now, I think the biggest differences when it comes to this kind of sustainability debate is that when I moved to Singapore in 2015, the conversations I was having with large corporates about sustainability 
were significantly less advanced than the conversations I was having as a consultant in Europe in 2008, 2009, 2010. Right, so there is a distance. There's a gap that needs to be closed. And I think we've been doing a lot of work in this space, not only Singapore, but also the surrounding countries. Uh, there is a lot of progress, but there is still a little bit of a gap that has to be closed. And that goes at the government level, that goes at the corporate level, as well as at the people level. I think the awareness of climate change in Singapore is very high. I think people really know that this is a real thing. But people have so much faith in the government, which is something that's very alien to Europeans. People have so much faith in the government that they don't worry. And that's an incredible achievement of a very long-standing government. But as a consequence, it also leads to inaction. There is this conviction that the government is going to solve the problems for them, um, which is something that Europeans don't have and Americans absolutely don't have. So I think this is an interesting kind of conflict or uh, at least a, a very stark difference. Now, if you go to the surrounding countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, you have much less powerful governments. You have much less faith in government's ability to act on the best behalf of the people. But you also have much lower levels of education, of affluence. And so for in there, what we see that you see these countries, and then of course you go to East uh, Asia, where you have like Myanmar and India and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and so. And there you have the problems that, yeah, people are really not ready to enter into lifestyle choice, choices about sustainability when their livelihoods are by and large still not guaranteed in the same way. And so I think that exposure to this reality and then the understanding of how different it is in, in the European Union and in, and in the US, by and large, of course, there is also still a lot of poverty. Yeah, for us was pretty inspirational and was one of the reasons why we realized like, look, we need to focus on these areas. And I'll just add one more point to this. So if you look at sustainability, again, like the way companies have tackled sustainability, there is this famous saying in sustainability, which is think global, act local. And that has been a famous kind of way of thinking for decades in sustainability, like, oh, there are global problems and we have to focus on local solutions. If you think about regeneration, that is completely the wrong approach. There, when you think about regeneration, you have to think about think global, act global. And this is really important because it leads to fundamentally different choices. Like if you're, like, so as, as I mentioned, I'm originally from Belgium. We've had conversations with a Belgian organization, really great organization. They're doing great work in reforestation in Belgium. But it costs 80,000 euros to reforest one hectare of land and to kind of monitor it for a 20-year period. And that's a lot of money. With that amount of money, you can probably reforest 40, 50, 60 hectares of land in Southeast Asia, in Myanmar, maybe in Africa as well. As a consequence, the impact that you can have, not only in terms of increased carbon absorption, but also the social impact, is really, we're talking 100x, 1,000x more impact. 
So the regeneration approach is going to be very clear. You say like, you've got to focus on, if you've got $5,000 and you want to make a change, you want to do something that's actually going to contribute to the fight against climate change, don't do it in your backyard. It's very unlikely to be the best place in the world to do it, right? Whereas the sustainability approach and kind of corporate social responsibility is always going to be like, oh, we need to do this locally because then our local communities can also benefit from it. And so it's a different area of focus that comes into stark contrast when you hear these concrete numbers and you say, okay, you, can, you have a choice. Either you pay $80,000 for one hectare or you pay the same amount of money for 40 or 60 hectares and 100x impact. Right? And for some companies, the choice is not simple. For me, the choice is very simple. But for many of our clients, the choice is not that simple. But thinking that this way, couldn't it be seen as a way to, for us Europeans to just wash our hands on the problem, saying that the rest of the world has to plant trees to make that really regeneration happen? I'd say yes and no. Yes, in, the, in terms that our ability in Europe to do regeneration in a very constructive manner is highly limited. Unless if we de-urbanize and depopulate, right? which is probably not what anyone is really after. I think the regeneration really needs to happen in the areas where the benefits of regeneration are going to be highest. And these are going to be typically poor countries with large potential for regeneration, as well as with large co-benefits, right? So if you plant mangroves, you're protecting the shores, there's a lot of other benefits. The question is not where does the work need to happen? The question is who needs to pay for it? And I don't think that we can expect that the Burmese and the Indonesians and the Kenyans and the Madagascar people, that they're all going to pay for it themselves. We need to find ways to fund this important work in some kind of north-south transfers. But it becomes much more interesting for a company to do this if you can appropriate some kind of value from this. And then these are the types of uh, mechanisms that, that Handprint as an organization is, is trying to develop and the, the types of digital tools that enable a company in France like Danone to contribute to a good cause in Madagascar and still somehow create a great, credible narrative that speaks to their customers, that speaks to their employees, that will actually create some benefits for them in terms of employee loyalty, uh, retention, in terms of um, customer willingness to pay or repeat purchases, just as an example. So how do you kind of bridge that gap by making the distant, let's say, a ocean plastic cleanup project in Madagascar, make that personal to a buyer or an employee in Europe. And if you can do that, and you can do this with lots of digital technology, then I think it's not about, are we shifting the blame or are we shifting the responsibility? It's like, no, we take responsibility, but we take it in the best possible way. Because I think as people get more educated, which is especially true in Europe, to somewhat lesser degree in the, in the US, we're going to see a movement where consumers are going to hold companies accountable for making the wrong type of positive impact. I can perfectly imagine in a couple of years, a company saying like, look, we did this amazing thing. We've planted the forest here in the village. 
that people will say like, well, you're an idiot. With the money that you spend on that, you could have you could have planted 50 times more trees in a country that really needs it more, right? And so I think that there is going to be this uh, mentality shift, and as a consequence, also that companies will adjust and just invest the money in natural capital where it has the highest returns on natural capital. Yeah, it's really about educating ourselves as uh, citizens to greenwashing and also social washing and know where uh, the priorities are and the action can happen and make a difference. It's funny that you are mentioning uh, Danone, which produces yogurt that actually are made. Usually the, the envelope of the yogurt is made of plastic. And, you know, it's kind of the, the biggest problems because in France, the, those plastic cups are not uh, recycled. So it's about asking the questions at many different levels. And I'm sure companies like, like this one are trying to be as sustainable they can be, but it's a very long journey. And your company, Handprint, is really here to help them do their share in the fields where they can act really immediately, which I think it's very important to have a balance between immediate action and long-term action and kind of changing the process and changing the mentality, et cetera, which, which may take time as well. So would you have two or three pieces of advice to, to share to our listeners today? I think the most important piece of advice is there is still hope there that we are going to avoid the worst of climate change, that we can prevent a significant biodiversity collapse, and that we can find a way to have some type of economic growth, mainly in wellness and in happiness, that aligns with a more sustainable and regenerative planet. That's one thing. I think the second thing is, as an individual consumer, there's only a little bit you can do if you act alone, right? So if you engage in collective action and you join organizations or movements or loose connections of people that are working together to achieve something, there's a lot more that you can do. I remember when I was back in Antwerp in Belgium in 2008, we had one of the first uh, collective, like individual collective purchasing agreements for green energy, which was an incredible thing. So somebody in the community just set that up and started basically putting flyers in people's uh, mailboxes saying like, hey, I want to get 100,000 signatures for a collective green energy purchasing agreement so that we can motivate one of the big electricity producers to put some solar or some wind energy somewhere. And this worked, right? And so even at the small kind of small scale community level, there is a way to instill big change, which I think is really hopeful. And then the third thing I think is find your passion, right? I've been very fortunate to be able to pursue many passions that I've had and so far that it hasn't really backfired yet. At some point it's going to happen. That's okay. But that I think most people, not every person, but I'd say 95% of people on the planet that currently live on, on this uh, blue planet care about something that is bigger than themselves. They might not care about climate change. They might not even believe it, but they might care about clean air or they might care. There might be avid divers and they care about coral reefs or they might have something about like, oh, I really care about female education. Or if you care about something, find ways to support that something. 
because the difference in financial affluence that we have in the West in Europe and that we have in, in Singapore as well, and what people have in many parts of the other parts of the world is so massive. And we see on our platform that the incredible amount of work that some of the NGOs that we work with, that they can do with one or two euros, it's just mind-blowing. So I think most people can miss five euros a month or maybe 10. And I think if there is something that you can miss, find a way to contribute. You can obviously do it through handprint, but there are also many other organizations that could uh, do it. And I think that's um, that's a good thing to do. And especially if you're in Europe, you can probably get tax benefits for it. And then it even it only costs you half of it. So there is this kind of saying in the in the in the NGO space that people who donate to three NGOs on a regular basis are happier than people who don't. I don't know if that's true, but it's worth trying out. Isn't it? Thank you so much, Simon, for this very, very, very insightful and uh, inspiring discussion. Uh, thank you so much. And we will. Where can we find you? We can find you on social medias, right? Oh, I mean, I'm mainly active on on LinkedIn. So, but I have a very difficult last name, so you'll have to put that uh, in the, in the description because it's Silabix, and I don't think uh, most of your audience will uh, be able to to write it if I uh, pronounce it. So, mainly on LinkedIn. I, I think I also have Twitter, uh, Simon underscore JDS, but I'm really not very active on Twitter. But those are yeah the two main ones, and then of course you can find me and. And on, my, on the YouTube channel of Handprint, I have a lot of videos where I kind of feature as Professor Planet. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, a, there's quite some videos there about like the different aspects of regeneration that we're working on and how it matters, why it matters, how it can be relevant to companies. And there's some interesting content there. So that's also something to look for. I love that. I love that Professor Planet could be Captain Planet, but Professor Planet is just, uh, it's just perfect. It, it's, uh, it's a very good way to summarize who, who you are. One of the things you can see uh, is our initial founding video uh, with uh, Matthias Ryan and I. And in the end of the video, I appear in the Captain Planet outfit. So. <laughs> great. Excellent. Thank you so much, Simon. Have a great day. And um, thank you. Thanks, Marine. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.